You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Matthew. Here's Nate. Jesus now has completed his teaching to his disciples concerning the end times. And Matthew 26 verse 1 reads that when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Even though no one knows the day or the hour of the second coming of Christ, Jesus was able to announce to his disciples in two days when the Passover comes, I will be delivered up to be crucified. And how appropriate, of course, that Jesus would be crucified during the Passover. He is, as John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He really is that true and right Passover Lamb. And John recorded in Revelation chapter 5 that for all of eternity, I think, he said that he saw Jesus as the Lion of the tribe of Judah, but as the Lamb that had been slain from the foundation of the earth. Then the chief priests, verse 3, and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar amongst the people. Now this is fascinating because Jesus here, as God the Son, announces to his disciples, hey, in two days during the Passover, I'll be delivered up and I will be crucified. Now who would do that crucifying? Who would instigate this whole thing? Well, the chief priests and the elders of the people. But they said, we'll do it, but not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. In other words, you have this conflict now between the desire of these wicked men and the sovereign will of God. And of course, you know who won. Uh, Jesus was delivered up at the Passover and the will of God, the sovereign plan of God was unfolded there in that moment. The religious leaders were merely instruments in the hands of God to accomplish the ultimate will of God, even though, as we'll see, they were held responsible by God for their actions. Now, verse 6, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Now, of course, Jesus spent a good amount of time in Bethany. He knew people there. Here he's in the house of Simon the leper. There's a woman there. We know from the other gospels that this was Mary who had a sister named Martha and a very famous brother uh, at this time, especially named Lazarus. And Mary was a woman of total devotion. She was very in tune with Jesus. Always uh, when you see her in scripture at the feet of Jesus, worshiping the Lord, praying to the Lord, receiving teaching from the Lord. She really typifies, I think for many of us, 
a strong walk with Jesus Christ, just learning from him, worshiping him, praying to him. And here she senses the very thing that Jesus had been broadcasting to his disciples, that her, that his death was imminent and that he was not on his way to some kind of earthly kingdom to set up a visible messianic rule and reign and authority, but that he was actually going to his ultimate humiliation, to his death, even the death on the cross. And so she takes a very expensive ointment and takes the flask and pours it on his head. This would have been a huge sum of money. And she basically just worships the Lord with it and anoints him for his burial. She is honoring him and his death before he actually dies. And some of the disciples were angry about this and said, said, why this waste? It could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But of course, it isn't possible to waste your devotion, to waste your worship upon the Lord. You know, there are many things in this life that it is absolutely possible and probable that if you put your worship there, you will be wasting your worship. You will be wasting your devotion. But Jesus is the one. God is the one whom if you give him your devotion, you give him your worship, it will never be wasted. When a person worships a relationship, perhaps a husband or a wife, when they worship their children, when a person worships their body or worships sex or sexual freedom, when a person worships money or success or fame or ease, or when a person worships ministry, they're worshiping something that will never be able to handle their worship. It will indeed be wasteful. But it was not possible for Mary to pour out her treasure before the Lord and have it be a waste. But that was the assumption of these disciples. The other gospels indicate to us that it was Judas who led the charge with this idea because he often used to steal from the money bag. And so he liked the idea of selling this expensive ointment and uh, being able to have a little bit of extra money for himself. But Jesus, verse 10, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. Not just for me, but to me. For you, verse 11, always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. A strong statement from Jesus. He's not ridiculing the idea of giving to the poor, but he is mentioning here that I am going to be here on earth with you only for a short period of time and only a couple of days before I actually go to my death. You don't always have me. Verse 12, in pouring out this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And so what Jesus indicates here is that he values devotion. 
I mean, he, he doesn't rebuke her in the slightest. He is on her team because of her extreme devotion unto the Lord. It's one thing to have knowledge of the Lord. It's another thing to, to actually do something with that knowledge and to have a devotion unto Jesus. And Mary was that woman with extreme devotion for her Lord. Now, in verse 14, it says that then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver, which was fulfilling prophecy. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. This whole thing about Mary and the, the selling of the fragrant oil and all of that, J Judas despised it. He couldn't stand what was happening here. So in one sense, it reads as if it was the last straw for this man. He goes to the religious leaders, the chief priests, plural, and says, hey, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? Now on the first day, verse 17 of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? This had become now an annual tradition for them, eating the Passover with Jesus. And so they want his directions. He's their master, their leader, their Lord, their rabbi. Where do you want to eat the Passover, Lord? And so he said, verse 18, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And so Jesus gives them these directions. It's uh, not easy to figure out if this was a supernatural arrangement or something that Jesus had previously arranged. But a house is readied, and the disciples go and prepare the Passover. And Jesus, verse 20, when it was evening, reclined at table with the twelve. So Judas now is there with them. And as they were eating, verse 21, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, this is beyond just simple denial or fear. This is actually being involved in the process of seeing Jesus sent to the cross. And they were, verse 22, very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? It's always been fascinating to me to see the response of these disciples that they began to search within. And they began to, even though they all would later say that they would not deny the Lord. It's interesting that at least initially there was this hesitancy within them. Is it me? Am I going to be the one to deny you? And of course, later you see each of them follow Peter's lead and say, I will never deny you. Now, like I said already, the betrayal is different from the denial but isn't it interesting that these men who had great searchings of heart when Jesus first spoke to them, later on had a self-confidence that they shouldn't have possessed. It actually led them, their self-confidence, to a prayerlessness. 
that was unhealthy in their lives, which led them into temptation. And so what we, of course, take away from this is that it is good for us to have a high view or an intense view of the possibility of sin coming from our lives to be able to say, but by the grace of God, there go I, instead of having strong self-confidence that I won't sin, I won't blow it, to have a real trust in the Lord and to say, Lord, I need you. You have to keep me from rebellion. Now, Jesus answered their question, verse 23, and said, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And so a harsh word about Judas. And Judas, verse 25, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. Now, the other Gospels make it clear that even though Judas understood and Jesus understood, the disciples really didn't understand. Judas wasn't this obvious candidate in their mind for betraying Jesus. Jesus actually dipped the bread and handed it to, G to Judas, and still they did not know. Now verse 26, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Of course, in a figurative sense is what Jesus is referring to. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the, this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now here we have Jesus giving to us a new meal as believers. He broke off from the traditional Passover meal that they'd been eating, took some bread and took the cup, gave them the bread and said, hey, this bread now, when you eat it, it symbolizes my body broken for you. And when you take the cup, what that symbolizes is the, my blood, the blood of the new covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so even now today, believers everywhere will eat the bread and drink the cup. We're remembering the incarnation of Jesus, that he became flesh and dwelt among us. We're also remembering his blood shed for us, the blood of a new covenant by which we are forgiven. And beyond just forgiven, the new covenant, of course, according to Ezekiel 36 and Hebrews chapter 8, indicates that we have a serious upgrade when we come to Christ. We are born again, and he begins to write his law upon our hearts. It's a powerful thing, an internal shift and change in reality within. Then Jesus, verse 31, said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So Jesus quotes here from Zechariah chapter 13. An interesting thing because he says, 
when you strike the shepherd, the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Now, of course, primarily this speaks of when Jesus was struck on the cross, his disciples scattered. But isn't it interesting that the enemy, one of his chief tactics is to strike down the shepherds of various churches and cause confusion amongst the flock, confusion amongst the sheep. And so Jesus here arranges a meeting ahead of time uh, that would happen post-resurrection. He says, I will go before you to Galilee. And I believe that this is the place that Paul referred to in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where 500 of them met together and witnessed Jesus at the, all at the same time. Peter answered him, verse 33, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. So again, that brash pride and self-confidence in Peter. But notice, it says at the end of verse 35, and all the disciples said the same. As long as we trust in ourselves and our own strength, we will fall and fail. But we have to trust the Lord and the Spirit of God within us and believe strongly that if we walk in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh, as Paul said in Galatians 5. Then Jesus, verse 36, went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and, which means oil press. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, so James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. So he invites these men during this sorrowful, difficult, troubling time to join him in prayer. It appears that as Jesus went to this very specific designated place for prayer, the weight and the gravity of the cross was, was affecting him and influencing him. And he went through this, not tapping into all of the power of his divinity. He had set aside the privileges of his divinity. He was going through this as a man dependent upon his heavenly father, fueled and strengthened by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he is sorrowful and he is troubled and he invites these men into prayer with him, prayer that he calls watching. And going, verse 39, a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. This is one of the most powerful prayers and incredible insights in all of uh, God's word. First of all, notice the prayer of Jesus. If possible, let this cup pass from me. He, in his humanness was thinking of the gravity of this moment understanding what it would be like to physically suffer but also emotionally spiritually psychologically suffer as he bore the wrath of god and the sin of mankind 
And so the if it be possible is kind of like saying, hey, if there's any other way for mankind to be saved, any other way, Father, for you to accomplish this reconciliation that you have desired to accomplish, let it be nevertheless not as I will, but as you will. And this is what prayer will often do in our lives. It will conform us to the will of the Father. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So, verse 44, leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. And the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Two things here about prayer. Notice that Jesus expected that Peter and James and John would be strengthened for coming temptation. Strengthened to endure it if they would only pray. Prayer is a preemptive strike against coming temptation. But notice as well that Jesus, through prayer, was emboldened to leave that garden and face his cross. Now, while he was still speaking, verse 47, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now, the betrayer had given them a sign. This is what Judas had said, saying, the one I will kiss is the man sees him. In other words, Jesus would not stand out as obvious. There was no halo or glow. Isaiah 53 verse 2 says that there was that he was without form or comeliness. And he came up to Jesus verse 49 and at once said, "Greetings, Rabbi," and he kissed him. Judas never referred to Jesus as Lord. And Jesus said to him, "Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you not think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? And so this interesting moment unfolds as they're arresting Jesus and as he's allowing himself to be arrested, one of his men draws his sword and strikes the servant of the high priest and apparently isn't a great shot because he cuts off his ear. John reveals for us years later that it was Peter who acted this way, not that we couldn't have guessed, that he cut off this, the ear of a man named Malchus. And we also learn that Jesus healed the ear, Luke tells us in Luke 22, covering Peter's mistake. And so... 
just the impetuous nature of Peter. In fact, Luke tells us that the others asked, should we draw our swords? But Peter would not wait and was impatient. And how many times have I uh, acted in this same kind of way, hacking off ears, so to speak, when I should have waited for the command of the Lord. Jesus says, don't you know that I could just ask my father and he would deliver me. At that hour, Jesus said, verse 55, to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. And so Jesus is rebuking them one last time. You could have obtained me, detained me publicly, but it's the fear of man. You've come out like I'm a robber with swords and clubs, but of course we know that they could not have taken Jesus anywhere unless he allowed himself to go with them. Then those, verse 57, who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. And so they go to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. It's As you patch all the gospels together, it's apparent that there are is more than one high priest at this particular moment. And probably what was happening there is that the Romans would appoint a new high priest, sometimes yearly, but in the Old Testament, the high priest was supposed to be a perpetual position until the high priest died. So you probably had the nationally recognized high priest and then the high priests as far as the Romans uh, saw them and Jesus would bounce around between these men and they'd put him through some illegal trials here in the middle of the night. They tried to find false witnesses and at last verse 62 came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. So the accusation was simple. Two men finally agreed and said, we heard him say that he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. And he had said this, but in a reference to his own body. But here, finally, after being silent, just like a lamb before its shearer is silent, the high priest asked Jesus, Do you hear this? Are you the Christ, the Son of God? And Jesus said to them, verse 64, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have heard now his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, verse 66, 
He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? This all makes it very clear that they were crucifying Jesus because of his claim to be the Son of God and God the Son. Now Peter, verse 69, was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean? But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. He couldn't even stand up without the power of the Holy Spirit to a little servant girl. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath, swearing, I do not know the man. And the third time, after a little while, the bystanders came up to Peter and said to Peter, Certainly you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. You know, you're from Galilee. Then, verse 74, he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And of course, this was the second crow of the rooster. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. You know, this was probably a necessary ingredient in Peter's life. He came to the end of himself, which made him so available to God for the work that he wanted to do in his life. God bless you, and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.